Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I'm Eki Tepsapornchai. Well, it's good to have you guys back uh, with us on this episode. Just a little bit of housekeeping on the front end here. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast, we'd encourage you to do that. You can find us on both the Apple and the Android platforms. Also, you can now um, see us uh, on YouTube. Not that you want to see me, but you definitely want to see Eki. He's got a handsome face. Uh, so you can go to youtube.com backslash at truth be known podcast. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, and we make sure you subscribe to uh, the channel so you can get updates on when we got news, when we have new stuff coming out. Uh, we've got uh, new YouTube short videos that we're doing. We've got some other new stuff coming up uh, that we'll talk about. And all of this is really just to help equip you in your Christian walk uh, to faithfulness to, to God as you uh, sojourn through this life, looking forward to the next. So we hope that you'll uh, make yourself uh, uh, take advantage of those things. Well, today we've got a, a real special guest with us, uh, Grant Castleberry. Grant, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself or those who may not be familiar with you, where are you serving, what's kind of going on in your ministry, and uh, then we'll get moving from there. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely, and and let me say it's a joy to uh, to be on with you, brothers, and uh, just to get to be a part of the podcast. My, uh, I'm married, have uh, t- four kids, and I serve at Capital Community Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, as the senior pastor here. I've been here for three and a half years. So same as you, Eki, I think we, we arrived at our churches about the the same time. Interesting. And, and what, where are you in John's gospel? I am in John chapter 15. Okay. I'm in, I'm behind you. So I'm in, I'm finishing John chapter seven. So we both preach through, through uh, the gospel of John to, to, uh, to, to start off. I, I paused and did first Timothy, which is probably why I'm a little bit behind you, but, um, but I, I'm an expositor and just trying to faithfully serve the Lord here in Raleigh, North Carolina. I've also started, I don't know if I've told you all about this, but I've started a radio program here. It's broadcast in Wake County called Unashamed Truth. And that's on the Truth Network here. And we'll just see what the Lord does with that. But just had that opportunity this year, and I started broadcasting in September. So unashamedtruth.org, unashamedtruth.org is where you can uh, check that out. So uh, I'm working on a, a PhD at Southern Seminary on Martin Lloyd-Jones. So studying the doctor, as he's famously called by, by many, and just enjoying doing that research. It's a grind, but enjoying doing that on top of everything else. Well, if you're going to study any doctor, he's a great place to start. Exactly. Yeah, the, I the best, the best doctor to study. Yeah. I love Martin Lloyd Jones, and if you're listening to this and you don't know who that is, find out like right away. Pause the video, look him up. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, I think all of his sermons are free um, on uh, the Martin Lloyd Jones Trust website, so you can uh, Google that, and maybe we'll put the links in the show notes. 
Well, thanks for that, Grant. Um, so, you know, you're talking about uh, the books that you guys started preaching in. Um, you know, I'm here planning a church in Alaska, and um, the book that I started uh, the church plant on was the book of Jude. <laughs> I don't know if I'd recommend that necessarily to guys planning a church, but uh, anyway. Um, well, today, I think we've got a really important topic. I, one of the concerns that I have in the current state of uh, the, the evangelical state in the West is what appears to me to be um, a, 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 a misfocus, a kind of a distraction from what should be our primary aim and focus as believers in in our country, and that's the gospel. And so I really want to talk about the primacy of the gospel. Um, and maybe as we just kind of get started, Grant, let me ask you this. As you kind of uh, take a, a look at the culture that we live in now, particularly the church, do you see a need to sort of rein um, back, rein the church back? And I mean, you know, believers, do you see that there's been a distraction from the gospel proclamation from what we should be doing? Um, or where, where do you kind of see things at? I definitely think that there is a danger in an overemphasis on political theology, a danger of overemphasis on political theology. And why I think it's a danger, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have a coherent, good political theology. We should all have good political theologies. We should be fighting for biblical ethics in the public sphere, godly virtues, uh, the moral law, if you will, that that God has has revealed, we should seek godly people and political offices to advance those things. But politics is downstream from culture, which is downstream from religion. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the only way that true change is going to happen is going to come through a changed heart, which results from the preaching of the gospel. Hmm. And that is the primary role of the gospel minister. The gospel minister's primary role is to make disciples, not to influence the culture through their political involvement. Now, again, I, I teach Christians on political issues, issues that are deemed political, but they're really just moral issues, issues like gay marriage and and abortion, issues like work and socialism, things like that. I'll, I'll touch on that, but it's not the primary emphasis of, of my ministry. My primary emphasis is Christ and Him crucified, just as Paul talked about, and winning people to Christ. So that's my primary emphasis. Now, your question is, do I see a danger of an overemphasis? There, there is a danger, but I understand why guys have stepped off and tackled political theology. And the reason being is because guys feel so betrayed by so many evangelical leaders mm. that have advanced leftist ideas in the church and evangelical institutions and they're tired of it. And so they want to push back with a more robust Christian political ideology against those things. So is there a danger in that push to neglect the preaching of the gospel? Absolutely. But I think we also need a space for guys like an Andrew Walker, uh, 
my friend Chase Davis and others who are who are really doing some good work there in Christian political theology. Mm, amen. And, and Nathaniel, maybe you should share a little bit of example of what you did last night or yesterday. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe that will make a good point because I think uh, I'm I'm pretty vocal about at least lately about politics not being our savior. And this isn't a podcast on politics. But to your point first, uh, Grant, I, I absolutely agree with that. I, I think what we need, and I, it, particularly when I look at younger guys in the church, and I'm thinking of some of these guys who, like you've just described, uh, they felt betrayed by, you know, so-called evangelical leaders who have, you know, said just really stupid things like you can support platforms that murder babies. Y- you can't do that faithfully as as a Christian. Um, and, and so I, I totally get that and I understand uh, the, the motivation to want to step up and do things. I think what uh, w- what I would like to see is just uh, what you guys are doing in your churches, right? You're, you're teaching about the moral issues. You're teaching about our responsibility to uh, promote what God says is good in all spheres of life. Um, but what, what I think isn't happening in some circles is to couch that in the understanding of ultimately what our responsibility is, right, to proclaim the gospel. And I think ultimately the reality that if we want to see true change in your town, in your city, in the nation, that can only come uh, by hearts being changed. And there's only one thing that has the power to do that, and that's the gospel. And so, yes, get out and go vote by all means. Um, get involved in your community. Uh, Eki, you mentioned what I did last night. So uh, last night I attended a city hall meeting that was about um, moving LGBTQ books out of the children's section of our local library. Um, and I went and I spoke um, at that meeting for the three minutes they gave us or, or whatever. And You know, so I think there is a place and it's appropriate to do those things. Um, We can't just turn a blind eye and let evil run rampant when God has given us in our country, at least the opportunity to speak up easily and freely. Now, I think we would want to speak up even if it wasn't easily and freely. Um, But so we want to take those opportunities. But but what I but what I don't want to see is the mindset or for that passion uh, that's not tempered um, to lead people to think that if we just get the right political party in office, all of this will end. Well, it won't end uh, because, you know, you go to Ephesians, I think it's either chapter two or chapter three. um, It tells us what the heart is, what people are before they come to Christ, right? They're following after the lust of this world, the prince of the power of the air, um, et cetera, et cetera. They're depraved, they're children of wrath. And so everyone, regardless of what political party they are, without Christ is that, right, <laughs> ultimately. Um, and so while we should never join with evil, and we we can't as believers, um, and, and nor should we abdicate, um, I think, our freedom, uh, to stand up for truth, what we shouldn't do is put the gospel on the back burner as though those things are the solution. Yeah, I gave a message recently on uh, the gospel and Marxism. I was invited to come out to a church in Arizona. They asked me to address that. And one of the statements that I made, and I've, I've made this statement on Twitter as well, 
Um, we as ministers of God, we must stand upon truth, um, regardless of how it's seen. And a lot of times truth is going to be seen political by the world. But if we back away from that truth, just because it's seen as political, well, I think we've lost the truth war. So we have to stand upon it no matter what. There, There's a reason why the church stands as light and salt. But at the end of the day, when Jesus Christ said, go and make disciples, um, well, go and make disciples doesn't start by trying to win people over to our political views. And we have already seen that from the um, the GOP. There are people that are aligning with people like Kenneth Copeland, right, who are outright heretics. And so we understand that no matter which party is in there, there's there's a lot of unbelief. And and even worse, in some sense, there's, there's a false brand of Christianity on either side that gets pushed uh, by various uh, candidates. Um, but we still stand upon the truth, and, and it has to start with the gospel. Um, the, the gospel is what changes people. The gospel, and, and I know, Grant, you're going through the book of John. I've been going through the book of John as well. And the beautiful thing about the book of John is that we learn about Christ, right? I mean, we we go through there, and that we learn about Christ. We learn about what he taught, how he responded to situations. We see in the book of John just how the word believe is not always used for true belief. And so there's a, a division between those who believe falsely, those who believe truly. But those who are saved in Christ need to be able to study and understand the words of our Lord so that they can follow after him and ultimately be able to share and, and represent the gospel in a manner that is biblically accurate. Absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And, um, you know, I was thinking about the other day in Acts chapter six, you know, this story well, when there was uh, just an uproar in Jerusalem with the Grecian widows not being served and and people came to the apostles and said, yeah. basically, you need to deal with this. You need to take care of this issue. This is a problem. And the apostles said hold up we don't need to deal with this mm. because we will not neglect the ministry of mm. prayer and the word to wait tables and so that leads them to appoint the seven so there was a misconception on the part of the people saying okay you you apostles you have to deal with this issue it was a serious issue no doubt the grecian widows weren't being served it was an important issue but it wasn't the most important issue the most important issue they deemed was the spiritual issue of prayer and the ministry of the word of god and and the reason for that is because of what they viewed as the primacy of the gospel itself that the message that needed to be worthy of their time was the proclamation of the gospel that it that was the center of their ministry and then the prayer which was invoking the lord to receive the spiritual power from on high to see it change the hearts and the the minds of the people that they were preaching to so that was central for the apostles and you see that through the rest of the book of acts you see that in paul's epistles peter's epistles that this primacy of the ministry of the word of god because the word of god has that supernatural power within itself or i'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god unto salvation to the jew first and the gentile so it's this dunamis this power that is in the word so i tell tell our people look as long as you're proclaiming the word of god don't don't worry about obviously try to be a good teacher try to connect with, with the people you're teaching to but god can always use what you've done if the word of god is is present amen 
and and so that's that's got to be the chief focus of the gospel minister and i and i know lloyd jones was very cognizant of that i know i mentioned at the the intro that i'm studying lloyd jones but martin lloyd jones had very keen political opinions on things and obviously things are much more tense now in terms of of where things are politically and that's part of the part of that milieu that we live in where the temptation is to just to to push against the the tide that we're experiencing but we have to stand really at the helm of the ship which is word and prayer and not not be tempted to try and shield ourselves from the waves but keep going because at the end of the day a staying at the helm is the only possible way that God is actually going to reverse the wave that we're experiencing because revival reformation only comes through the ministry of the word and the prayer. And and that's what Lloyd Jones really emphasized in, in London in the 20th century, this ministry of the word and prayer, you know, yeah, there were lots of communists. There were lots of dissidents, you know, all sorts of people. He even, um, was able to save a witch through his ministry, but but his chief focus was let's let's make sure that they're Christians no. before yeah. they adopt a biblical worldview. I can't force a biblical worldview on somebody who's not a Christian. They have to be converted first, and then they can develop a biblical worldview. Yeah, I I think that's a really good point there, uh, Grant. And I, I've got a a quote by. Lloyd-Jones pulled up here, which is exactly what you're talking about. He says, the church is largely wasting her time in talking politics and imagining that if you give people the Christian ethic and urge them to practice it, the problems of the world will be solved. It cannot be done. Regeneration is essential. And, and what he's not saying there is to just be totally passive in the world around you, right? Um, it, he's, he's just emphasizing the reality that real change true change it comes with regeneration um, you, you go to romans 10 just as a reminder uh for folks and you know the, the whole section is it romans well i guess you could say that about every book i was gonna say romans is such an incredible book but which book of the bible is not um but you get down to 14 in 10 and it says how will they call on him in whom they have not believed this is the problem we have right they don't believe christ i was sitting at this meeting last night hearing, I I mean, by far the vast majority in favor of exposing children to material that is grooming them um, for a lifestyle that's totally antithetical uh, to not not just God in general, but God's created order specifically. Um, And it was saddening. And no, um, you're not going to convince these people any other way because they they need a regenerate heart. Uh, The verse goes on to say, how then will they believe in him whom they've not heard? Right. Well, how do we change these people? They, they need to know of Christ. Um, and then it goes on to say, and how will they hear without a preacher? Right. And how will they preach unless they are sent? And I, I, I read that passage, the, those couple verses, and I just think, man, we need a renewed understanding um, or, or a renewed emphasis on what really changes people. Right. Um, go to the polls and vote uh, for righteousness. Amen. Hallelujah. I'll support you. Um, don't sit at home and do nothing and then complain. Right. I'm happy to say that. And then my next sentence is going to be, however, God is the one who sets up rulers and takes yeah. them down. And if you want real change, right, 
um, then be proclaiming the gospel to these people and be on your knees every night praying that God would give mercy. Um, and when I think of that, you know, and I pray that regularly, uh, it, it, the city I live in, it, it, I mean, truly uh, is it, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, th- these people are so lost. And the only thing that's going to change, have any real effect here, is if God is merciful and he brings revival, um, th- that, that he awakens uh, and calls people to himself, and that those who profess Christianity come back to their first love um, and focus on the primacy of the gospel. That's the only thing that's going to change this community. In the meantime, while I'm doing that and while other believers are proclaiming the gospel here, we still go and vote. Uh, right we just understand that that's secondary um in, in importance it's we do it we we can do it we should do it but you know what the real change happens with the callous knees of the saints and the proclaiming of the gospel yeah i think of ezekiel chapter 3 <clears throat> ezekiel is told by the lord that you are the watchman of israel um you need to proclaim the truth and if you don't proclaim the truth and um, and, and they continue in their wicked ways, then their blood is going to be on your hands. But if you proclaim the truth and they refuse to believe, then then your soul is delivered from that. So we have a responsibility no matter uh, what the outcome. Um, Grant, I'm wondering now also about church ministry. So we talk about the primacy of the gospel. And then I think within the church setting, um, we as pastors, we always have to think about what kind of ministries are going on at the church. What are we going to support? What, we, what are we going to prioritize? How does the primacy of the gospel help to inform how you help to oversee and manage the ministries at the church? Well, yeah, I think that that informs everything because you want the tip of the spear to be the proclamation of the gospel. So just in terms of our church, we want to prioritize ministries that are focused on church planting and equipping church planters with theological resources. So that's the, I mean, if we're honest, that is the tip of the spear, right? In Mm -hmm. terms of fulfilling the Great Commission is training men to go somewhere else in the world, make disciples and train 2 Timothy 2.2, make those disciples who will be able to train others also. That's That right there is the heart of the Great Commission. And so we want to put our resources as much as we can into that. Now we support the local homeless shelter. That's a Christian homeless shelter. That's evangelizing, discipling guys. We support the local crisis pregnancy center. We support a lot of those types of ministries as well. I'm not saying we don't support those, but and and those ministries are proclaiming the gospel. But we want to put at the forefront that that proclamation of the gospel and the word of God in faraway places and hard to reach places in new England here in America. And in like where Nathaniel's at in Alaska, hard to reach places where, where there's not many believers, where there's not many good reformed expository works going on. We want to, we want to come alongside and partner there and, and get the word out there. Hmm. So yeah, that inform that informs everything. And just just one other thing here: the twentieth century, the beginning of the twentieth century, there was a rise of what was called the social gospel, and a, a lot of guys in our tribe, when we hear that, we we go running, or <laughs> you know, we want to avoid this 
social gospel like the plague. And there's a reason for that. And that's because it closed down churches. Churches thought if we were just nice enough, if we if we opened up soup kitchens and mm-hmm. and if we opened up things that 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 help the poor, that that would be essentially our ministry. And there's nothing to say that a ministry of, of mercy like that is 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 wrong or, or something that you right. shouldn't do. But if there's no gospel proclamation there, if the gospel proclamation isn't the end game, mm-hmm. then it's all for nothing spiritually because you're you're feeding a man's body, but you're not feeding his soul. And in in the in the 20th century, they, there was no gospel proclamation. It was just humanitarian aid. And what eventually happened is the eventually the name of Christ was just dropped off the humanitarian aid, and and the churches just became social institutions that were meet, meeting some type of need. And um, it just the the witness and the power of the Holy Spirit was lost in all of that. And you're seeing, especially among more progressive leaning evangelical churches a push back towards that right you see the same mistakes that were previously made in history repeat themselves and you're seeing that same emphasis uh today you're seeing that amongst well-known evangelical leaders highlighting you know uh, it's almost as if we need to do ministries of of mercy otherwise people won't like us yeah. Rather, mm. rather than mm. let's have let's have a ministry of of mercy so that we can reach people for Christ with with the gospel as the primary end of all of that. Mm. Now it's interesting you're you're talking about um, people who are worried that the world may not like us, and of course we want to be uh, reverent, we want to be respectful, you know, we want to make sure that uh, we we don't come across as jerks when we're presenting the truth. But where do you draw the line in terms of, um, you know, we want to be liked and at the same time we want to stand upon truth. How do you help people struggle with that kind of tension of wanting to represent Christ well, but being careful not to turn being liked by the world into an idol? Well, the the Pauline impulse is always speak the truth in love. You know, I can't tell you how many times he adds with love at the end of his statement is his imperative. So as you're looking at your heart, that is a key question to ask ourselves is, do we love the people that have rejected the gospel, the people that are persecuting us, the people that malign us, the people that we're trying to reach, frankly, do we love these people? Or do we view them as outright enemies and we're wanting to reap, you know, shame on them? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that right there says a lot in terms of our heart. And if we're speaking the truth in love, which, you know, I, I believe both of you gentlemen are, I'm trying to do that. If you're speaking the truth in love, that's going to require to say hard truths that our culture will reject because they have a faulty understanding of love and truth. They understand that if you disagree with them, then it's unloving. They understand that if you disagree with them, that it's not necessarily the truth, it's it's your truth, and that just conf- contradicts their truth. And so, again, we have to, to go back to 
to ultimate truth, biblical revelation. Pray that the Holy Spirit will use it. Not let our personalities get in the way as much as we can. Yeah. And and pray that that we can plead with sinners with with tears tears in our eyes if necessary, but also say the truth. No. Look, I love you enough to tell you that that is wrong, that 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 decision is foolish, that you shouldn't have that that double mastectomy that's part of this sexual change that you're undergoing. You shouldn't do that because you're going to regret that decision later on. Uh, but let me tell you about how you can find your true identity, and that true identity is in Christ. Just as you are broken in Adam, Paul says in, in Romans chapter 5, you can find new life in Christ. Praise be to God, and that He is your new representative in faith, and all of your sins are taken away, and all of His righteousness is given to you. And you just give that message, and you just you know, just like the parable of the uh, the soils, you just hope that that seed can land on on fertile soil and Amen. and begin to bear fruit. And um, yeah, that's that that's it right there. But what we're talking about is evangelism. Yeah. Right. We're talking about evangelism, which we're all expository preachers. And what what I think would be helpful for your hearers is something I learned from my father-in-law is that the pastor can't just be an expositor. He also has to be an evangelist. Mm. And, uh, you know, Paul says in in Second Timothy 4, 5, he says, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So there's this evangelistic work that we're, that we're all called to do in a sense. We're all called to try to win men and women to Christ. That's Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 9, that, that he, became, he became all things to all people that he might win some. And so we have that responsibility to try to win people and also to train our people to be effective evangelists, you know, wherever they're at in their jobs and their households and to, and to teach them how to sit across the table from somebody over a cup of coffee and in 15 minutes walk through the gospel with that person Mm -hmm. and do it in a way that's loving and, and ways that they can ask diagnostic questions to get into those conversations and, and also to have the courage to do it and and encourage them prayerfully to have that courage. But yeah, that evangelistic work has got to be central for, for us expositors. Um, You know, we can't just, we can't just sit back in our studies and not, not win people to Christ. And I'm preaching to myself just as much as I'm, I am to y'all's listeners, but this is something that we have to, to focus on day in, day out. Now, Grant, uh, a lot of our listeners uh, are pastors and a lot aren't. So talk to me now. Why don't you talk to us just real quickly? Same topic, because I think a lot of folks actually have in mind just what you've said, um, but almost that it's the preacher's job. Uh, to be the evangelist. Well, that's what the preacher does, right? I'm just here to get fed. I'm here to, you know, learn what the Bible says. Uh, that that's the preacher should be out doing all the evangelism. But that's not what you just said. Yeah, I mean, Paul says in Ephesians four that pastors and teachers equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So this this right here, what you you just hit on, Nathaniel, I think is the missing link in so many good 
Bible-centered Reformed churches is this element of personal evangelism amongst its members, its pastor. Are we reaching lost people or are we just bringing over the more mature disciples that are leaving the local charismatic congregation you know who are we actually reaching and so training our people to evangelize is so important so i i try and teach our people five r's so i say look here's here's what you do the first thing, God reigns, that there is a God in heaven. Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. God created you. Uh, because of that, God gets to make the rules. Second R, retribution. There's going to be a, a final judgment in which every single person answers to God. Third R, ruin. Because of sin, we all stand condemned in that judgment. Mm-hmm. We are all deserving of death. You know, you can go through the Romans road here, Romans 3, Romans 6, but explaining that that we've all broken the law, James 2.10. You know, we've all stumbled and are guilty of, of, of breaking God's law. We all deserve condemnation. Then fourth, fourth R, redemption. This is, of course, the work of Christ, the God-man, truly God, truly man, and his substitution for us, both in his life and his death and his resurrection. And then last, last R is repentance, is the need for repentance and faith and trusting in Christ personally and, and, and submitting to his lordship in their life. So those are five R's and I, you know, I just walked through those in, in two minutes. So you can, you can train somebody to do that. And, and, you know, you might have a better method. I don't know, but you can train somebody to do that in a, in a, in a, in a one Sunday night, you know, get your people together one Sunday night. Let me walk you through how to, how to walk somebody through the, the plan of salvation and uh yeah then just unleash your people because they're gonna they're gonna know more people than you do they're gonna encounter more people in their jobs and their schools and in their families than then you're going to be able to encounter and they're going to begin to do that that evangelistic work and then lord willing also invite them to the to the church but the evangelistic work can't just be let me invite you to my church that's a good thing but we need to be also yeah. skilled and and teaching our people to be skilled in in actually winning people to Christ. Yeah, that's a good point. And if that's where you need to start, by all means, start there, right? Um, but I, I think it's it, it's important we talk about the pastor's function and role. Um, and John MacArthur makes a a, a good point. Uh, just in the the pastor being faithful to his call, he he evangelizes. Sometimes it's his own people. Um, but we're training and equipping the body to go out and do the work of the ministry. And that's how the church grows, um, right? You have the, the ideas, you know, Ephesians teaches that everyone in the church is given gifts by God. Those are meant to be used in the church for the building up and edification of one another. Um, and as you're equipped and trained by the leaders in the church, you go out um, and, and you present the gospel to those around you. Uh, but we're talking about evangelism, and I, I want to jump into revival here in just a moment, Grant. But uh, whether or not people evangelize, I think, really comes down to two things. First and foremost, I would say how deep their love for Christ is. Um, in that, 
our obedience, right, to his word. I mean, Jesus says, if you love me, you obey me, right? Uh, and and so there we, we have that. I think the 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 more love we have for Christ, and this develops, right, as we mature in Christ, as we come to know his word, we all start at one place and then our love deepens and it grows. And, and as that deepens and grows, I think we find more of a desire to go out and proclaim the gospel as we're commanded. But then two is having a love for people, right? Um, you know, our culture uh, promotes just really this antagonistic, you know, kind of uh, against each other, right? We're always pitted against each other. I just, G3 just published an article that I wrote about uh, the pugnaciousness in the society that we have today. Um, but if you love the people, then you don't see them as enemies. You see them as the mission field. But um, to your comment earlier, even if you have the view that those on the other side of your enemies, Christ still tells you to love your enemies. <laughs> so that's exactly. covered too, right? That's covered as well. And so I think when we see the perversion that's out there, uh, when we see just all of the darkness that's out there, um, we ought to have... I think two simultaneous feelings. I, I think that we feel angry. You know, Paul says, "Be angry, but sin not." And that's a righteous indignation um, uh, at the darkness over the sin, and simultaneously we feel a deep sorrow that those people are trapped in such darkness. And Paul says, "Such were some of you." So it's not as though we were different in any way or better. Um, maybe we didn't uh, engage in the same sins as someone else. But we were just as much enemies of Christ as they are. And so when we take that view, um, you know, I think we start seeing people wanting to evangelize. Um, mm. And I appreciate your comment about pastors because it, it is for those of us who, you know, that we love the word, we love study, uh, we're expository preachers. It typically means you spend a bit more time in the word. Um, it can be easy to get stuck behind the desk, right? Um, maybe not as easy if you're planting a church, but um, but it can be easy to go there. Um, and so I appreciate that comment. But Grant, let me move it to revival, and unless you want to jump in there, um, because I want to talk about. So guys are listening, and they're thinking, okay, well, it, it sounds like you're saying if we really want to see a difference and change uh, and and beauty again in our country and things affected. We we really need to look to the gospel for that, and I hope that's what people are getting because that's what we're saying. L let's talk about revival's role in that. I think revival is a word that um, a lot of guys in our circles might be a little cautious to talk about because it has sort of been stolen by the charismatic church and twisted and kind of perverted. Um, well, talk to us a little bit about revival. I mean, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a proponent of revival. Um, what does that look like? How does revival fit in in terms of where our hope is for any significant change? Well, revival is a very controversial word because people mean different things by it. In America, of course, we've had many revivals in our history. You think about the the great revival in New York in 1859, the, the prayer revival. You think about the Second Great Awakening and and Bennett Tyler and and Asohel Nettleton and and names like Charles Grandison Finney. 
you think about the first great awakening with George Whitfield and Edwards and and John Wesley and and names like that. But uh, what, what was helpful for me in understanding revival is I read Ian Murray's book Revival and Revivalism. Mm-hmm. Now there's some heavy heavy treading in there, but Murray makes the argument that in the 1700s revival was understood as a specific moving of the holy spirit in first in which god's people were as its name implies revived where god's people begin to to feel conviction over sin where god's people begin to desire in a more earnest way the word of god where god's people desired more to evangelize lost people so the distinction is it actually begins with the christians Hmm. revival begins with the christians Mm -hmm. you know you think about whitfield coming to preach at edwards's church and revival is happening well who's he preaching to he's preaching to the believers Hmm. now one of the byproducts of that is that you do see lost people take notice of what's happening with the believers. Lost people start to say, oh my goodness, that church house is packed out every night. Cars are down the road. Something's going on there. I, I want to go check it out. I want to go see what what's happening. And you have that raw spiritual power through the word of God and it it's effective you know people talk about going into those those services with whitfield and and it was like the 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 spiritual pressure on their bodies was palpable and they experienced the gospel and 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 they were converted but it first began with the believers what happened in the second great awakening not with everybody there were some faithful preachers in the 1800s as well so it's not we're not talking about just a blanket statement here, but with many, especially with Finney, is he said, I can engineer this. Yeah, right. I can exactly. I can give you some steps to to ensure that if you do A, B, C, and D, you will experience revival. And a lot of Americans, because we're very proactive, we're very hardworking, we have that Protestant work ethic, we love that. Oh, man, there's some steps here. If we market this right, if we have... Uh, an invitation with with six verses of just as I am at the end. We are going to do this. We just got to get the right preacher. We got to get the right guy in here with the with the right message, and 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 revival is going to happen. So you started to have Baptist churches that said, you know, our summer revival is yeah, is yeah. is July fifteenth through the twenty second, and and we're going to put it on the calendar as if you could schedule a supernatural intervention of the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in that way, revival began to be distorted in our country. So a lot of people have just some kind of pullback when they when they hear that. But in the right sense of the word, that is absolutely, I think, what is necessary in our country is an awakening and revival of the church. Mm. And really, that's what the Protestant Reformation was. It was it was a revival in the church where born again guys in the church like Luther and Zwingli started to say, we need to bring proper reforms 
in, in the life of, of 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 the Roman Church because the Holy Spirit is is like a fire within our bones that we have to bring these things in conformity to the Word of God. So really, that was a revival. And we need to be praying that that God will bring that to the churches, that God will bring a recovery of of a what Whitfield called a felt Christ, that mm-hmm. it, an experience with the Lord Jesus Christ in the heart, and that the gospel will will by necessity and by almost compulsion in the Holy Spirit become the primary focus again. And the word of God and and what y'all were saying, a loving submission to the word, that 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 right there is the is the essence of revival is people people desiring to to submit to God's word and obey him in a in a new way. And and when that happens, you know, churches are built. Churches are built overnight in periods of revival. And when I say that I mean, you know, God does a work and then you have you have a body and then maybe you're you're planning another church and and all these things happen in a, in a period of revival that would have taken maybe years and years and years and years of just faithful plotting otherwise god can do in a short amount of time and it sounds like the sovereignty of god is really the difference maker between for instance the first great awakening and the second great awakening where in the first great awakening we're recognizing that it's the power of god and the holy spirit to bring about revival but god uses us as instruments and so our call is to submit and to be faithful to what he has called us to do whereas in the second great awakening now you've got a lot of man-centered methods in terms of how to force or engineer and it becomes very man-centered rather than god dependent and then i think this is also a very similar to you had mentioned the social gospel before the social gospel also i think is very methods centered it's about we need to transform society we need to do this and and that in order to help win them over to christ Um, but also i think through the social gospel and i think we're seeing a lot of this today there there's an overarching emphasis upon the here and now rather than remembering what peter said in first peter chapter 1 verse 13 when he said to fix your hope completely upon the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of christ would you agree with that absolutely you know there's there's a um a really helpful verse and i'm gonna i'm gonna read it so i don't misquote it it's at the end of second corinthians chapter four where paul is he's talking about the nature of his his ministry and let me just turn there that's a great chapter absolutely he says this he says so we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal great verse so that right there is is the essence of our work is it's an unseen work in the sense that you can't see a person's soul the kingdom is not seen the the holy spirit is not seen god is not seen in, in the sense that he's a he's a spirit it's it's an unseen work with 
unseen realities, but very powerful realities. And so we have to, I think, remember that the Word of God is that gateway to the unseen. Mm. It's in prayer, right? Prayer is is the the gate into heaven uh, through Christ. And that's, again, going back full circle to Ephesians 6, 4, why the emphasis is, is on prayer and in the ministry of the word, because those are our tools by which supernatural realities pervade people's mm-hmm. lives in yeah. the word of God and, and us interceding for them at the at the throne of grace. Yeah. So, yeah, <clears throat> it's a it's a. It's uh, eternal realities, unseen realities. That's the that's the name of the game. And even you know, Paul in Ephesians six, you know, our battles not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So even our battle is ultimately that unseen spiritual battle. So keep helping us keep our focus on that, and our people with their focus on that is is of huge importance. We do things by faith. That goes back to the um, Paul saying, I am not uh, ashamed, but uh, the, the faithful live by faith. And I think about the cloud of witnesses in the book of Hebrews and how all those Old Testament saints uh, did things by faith, not even really getting to see or, or be able to experience the promises of God. But we operate upon those things because we know they are a reality. We know that they are coming. And though we may not see them here and now, we know that Christ will return and there is a certain future that we can place our hope on and never be disappointed. Mm. Amen. So, uh, Grant, as we kind of wrap up here, I, I, I won't ask you to give me the steps to revival <laughs> since we've already talked about how that doesn't work. I, I, I think you're right on. It's important that uh, we always keep in the forefront of our mind that, you know, these things have to be wrought by God, right? Um, but what you do see in, in history is a, a few things that kind of link revivals together with how God's people are living their life. And we're just now most recently talking about prayer, right? If uh, anyone who's read and you've read tons of uh, biographies, no doubt, and I think all of us have, um, you, you see that the, the men God has used in it, whether we see numerically or otherwise, right? You, you go even through biblical history and look at uh, Noah. God most certainly used Noah, but no one was saved except for eight people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he was faithful. But in even throughout modern history, one thing that you see is that the men God tends to use are men of prayer, right? Men who have a deep desire and love for god's word uh, for god for god's people for god's church and for the lost and all of that tends to be driven by a a, a very firm prayer life would you agree with that maybe talk to us a little bit about how someone's listening and they're saying you know i really kind of need this revival in my own heart i've gotten distracted with things of the world i've gotten too caught up in politics or in doing good works in 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 the neighborhood i want to see god move but i i need to see him revive in my own heart how, how do i do that where where does that person begin grant i think you have to begin with your view of god and the reality that for most of us especially if you're struggling with prayer your vision of god is too small Mm. your vision of god is too small because if you actually believe that god was sovereign and that god is 
transcendent over everything and has the power to answer prayer, then you would be on the throne of grace all the time. You, you would you would be on your knees pleading with God all the time for for God to work and God to intervene. And so going back to your your overall question about revival, that that I think is the starting point is is having a vision of God that is of a holy God. That God is not just a spiritual genie to help you figure out your next problem in your life, which is what, unfortunately, so many people are hearing, that God is just there to be the the kind of Easter bunny God who's going to drop off nice, nice gifts for them. But no, God is a holy God. God is in heaven, and God, God is a God of love. He's also a God of justice, and that we need to see God rightly first and and I think when when you really have a true revival that is present because then when you see God rightly then you understand the wonder of being able to commune with God in prayer that's what prayer is is communion with God but you're not going to appreciate that unless you appreciate the God that you're communing with and so you're going to desire prayer when you desire to spend time with God mm. and you desire to to fellowship with God and, and to know God more, that's what's going to be the impetus behind your, your prayer life. And then that's also what fuels the preaching of justification by faith is because when people see God as truly holy, then they begin to understand their sin. And when, when people see God as holy, there's that there's no self-righteousness at that point your vision of yourself gets really small when you understand the the god of mount sinai that mm. god is holy that that you in your own flesh and blood cannot approach him without a mediator when you see that god then you realize wow this is amazing that jesus christ died as a substitute for mm. me that he lived for me, that he rose from the dead for me, so that I can have peace with God, Romans 5.1, that I can enter into this relationship of peace with this holy God who would otherwise smite me <laughs> because I am a, mm-hmm. I'm a sinner. And um, But that all begins with a big view of God. You know, Luther had a big view of God. Yeah. He was afraid of God. He, he, he would confess his sins to, to von Stoppitz for hours and hours and hours and hours. And, and he, and Stoppitz would say, Luther, what are you doing? Like we have, we have other stuff to do. But he understood, no, God is holy. God is righteous and I am not. So I'm just, I'm trying to do good works. I'm trying to confess. And so when he finally discovered the truth of justification, it was just, it was, it was the biggest weight off his back in the world. Because now he knew what it was right, knew what it meant to be right before a holy God. So when revival happens, those elements take place, but it all begins with that big view of God. And I love that you refer to the God of Mount Sinai, because that brings us back to when the Ten Commandments were delivered in Exodus 20, and how the Israelites responded after receiving those Ten Commandments. They were, there was thunder, there, there was smoke, there was lightning, and their response to Moses was, you speak to us, let not God speak to us, lest, lest we die. 
and would also be on that same same mountain that uh, that Moses would have the vision of God's glory and uh, and the proclamation of God's uh, loving kindness and his other attributes that would that would echo forth through all of the Old Testament as well. Uh, definitely a, an awesome view of God and one that I think would have come to mind when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and his disciples ended up seeing the glory of God shining forth from his face. And of course, we think of Isaiah chapter 6, um, his view of God's holiness and his response, woe is me for I'm undone, a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king. And so having a big view of God, having a, a fearful and reverent view of who God is, helps us to greatly understand the awesomeness of God in human flesh who went to the cross to willingly die for sinners who were in opposition, who were enemies of God prior to that time. Mm -hmm. Awesome picture. Amen. Mm -hmm. Well, we've been pointing people, talking about the, the primacy of the gospel. You've been pointing people to Christ uh, in various ways the whole time, Grant, as we end why don't we narrow that down and do it a little more specifically? Because I have no doubt that someone that will listen to this podcast is maybe they don't have that understanding of God, that fear of God. Maybe they don't have that love for um, people outside of their own camps. Maybe they don't have the desire to evangelism because they're just simply not saved. Maybe they had an emotional experience and they're holding on to that maybe they assume because they're in a, a Bible preaching church that that's what saves them, but maybe they're just not saved. So we've been talking about the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, in its narrowest sense, Paul defines the gospel in first Corinthians 15. He said, this is what I delivered to you. The gospel, he puts the article in front of it. The, this is the gospel and gospel, the Greek word euangelion just meant good news. So, but Paul says this is the good news. And he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. So, according to Paul, the gospel is the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And obviously, that that needs some some meat on the bones for us to explain to a lost person, but it's the good news that God has made a way for you to find forgiveness for your sins. And God has made a way for you to stand righteous before a holy God as vindicated. That we, I used the word justified earlier, but it means, for example, in a court, court of law, that at the, at the sentencing, that you are vindicated, that, that not only are you shown to be not guilty, you're shown to be innocent, you're shown to be vindicated of, of all wrongdoing and, and a law keeper rather than a lawbreaker. And so God provides all of that through the work of Christ. So this is the hard thing for for especially legalists and morally righteous people to understand is that the way to heaven isn't by doing more good works. It's actually to stop trying to get to heaven by doing good works and to repent of those works that you've done to try to earn God's favor and to come to Christ and trust him because he is the only bridge so to speak to heaven he's the only way and that's why that's why in in terms of our apologetic our evangelism we tell people that christ is the only way confucius muhammad hinduism all of those roads don't span the gap they don't because only Christianity provides that atonement and that substitution and that means of forgiveness for your sins. 
all the other religions are you trying to work your way to make self-atonement. Christianity is Jesus Christ made the way for you. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't truly trusted in Christ and, and, and gotten to the point where you actually trust Christ, I would encourage you to just to, to read the Gospel of John, read it on your knees and say, God, open my heart, open my eyes, help me to believe, help me to have faith in this son of god give me this faith that that i might trust you and truly believe and when you truly believe in your in your heart when you truly believe in your heart that jesus is lord and lord and savior that he is who he said he is and that his death is your substitute and his resurrection is is going to be your future resurrection then at that moment that you are declared righteous that you are that you are saved that you are forgiven and uh that's something that once that happens that can't be undone you can't be unforgiven ever again you are forgiven for all your sins past present and future it's the greatest message in the world and that's why it's called the gospel amen amen christ is the only hope we have it's the only hope you have and it's the only hope the world around us has so let's keep the gospel at the center of what we do. Thank you so much, Grant, for joining us today. We hope that this podcast has been encouraging and edifying uh, to those of you who are listening. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If there are uh, topics or testimonies you'd love to share, you can email us at uh, truthbeknownpodcast at gmail.com. We will uh, put uh, Grant's information, some of the books and his radio station that he's mentioned in the show notes so uh, make those available to you so thank you for joining us and until next time let the truth be known the truth be known podcast is a theologically driven gospel-centered program serving the body of christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today subscribe to the truth be known podcast by using the podcast app on your apple or android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section